Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'm Shell. And I'm Lisa. And we're back with another dose of true crime from the true north. So we have a new review from Apple Podcasts this week from our listener, Nicole. It says, thank you, ladies. Listening to your podcast makes me feel like I am chatting with my bestie about my favorite topic, true crime. As a busy mama to two daughters and a full-time university student, time to myself is rare. But when I do catch a break, I almost always can be found listening to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? So thank you for taking me to my happy place. And I don't mean that in I enjoy hearing about other people's misfortunes. (laughs) But rather, I'm genuinely interested in hearing about and bringing light and recognition to Canadian crime and justice. I definitely recommend it to anybody and everybody. Keep it up. Yes. Thank you, Nicole. I know. What a great review. Thank you so much. That sums us up. That basically sums up everything that we wanted to portray in the podcast and why we started it. 100%. Literally, we brainstormed what we wanted this podcast to be when we started it. And that was it. That was it. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much, Nicole. Apple Podcast Reviews really help the visibility of our show so much, and we truly appreciate the love, so thank you. Thanks. So, the case I'm sharing with you today is a bit different. I thought that it was originally just going to be white-collar crime, embezzlement, fraud, and identity theft, but it was so much more than that. In the late 90s, a strange man appeared out of nowhere in London. He befriended everyone he met and convinced them that he was an American businessman. He was charming, easy to talk to, with a lovely wife and two kids. This man thought he was invincible. That is, until the untimely death of his friend exposed him for what he truly was, a murderer. This is the case of the Rolex killer. Take it away, girl. The beginning of this story takes us across the pond to the UK. On July 28, 1996, two fishermen are out on the water in the English Channel. They're dropping their nets and not having much luck, so they go out to a part of the water that is rarely frequented. That's when they see something odd. They pull up their fishing nets and something is tangled within them. Taking a better look, they realize what they have come across. It's a body. A decomposing body. Mm. I know. They call the police and they try to give this man an identity. The man was wearing a long sleeve shirt, trousers with the pockets turned out, and brown shoes. He had no form of identification on him at all. No wallet and nothing to say who he really was. So time of death and cause of death were also up for debate. In the coroner's report, there was a large, noticeable injury to the back of the man's head. But was it an accidental drowning? Was it a suicide? Or was this a murder with the body dumped at sea? Well, I know sometimes when it is a suicide, they don't take their identification with them. They just, they'll leave it all behind. 
yes, interesting, totally. And that was kind of the initial thought. The police were like, "Mm, we don't really, this doesn't really look like a murder. We can't really find anything to confirm that it might be foul play. Right. And also the police thought that this could have actually been accidental because they thought the man could be a fisherman and maybe got hit on the head while bringing up a heavy net full of fish. Like maybe he was fishing by himself. Yeah, and sometimes there's a lot of equipment on other boats. But then in my mind, I'm like, well, where'd the boat go? Right. I have a lot of other questions if that's kind of where their initial thought was going. Right. Maybe he was with someone else and it happened and he just got scared and didn't tell anyone. But... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, like, unknowns in this case at this point. Does the salt water affect decomposition? Like, does it preserve a body in any way? So the body was actually preserved. It was definitely decomposed, but it was preserved. Okay. So they they couldn't really figure out. The water definitely changes things. I know. Like, it had been in there for a while, so it was really hard to find anything. Mm-hmm. But there was something that the coroner did find. An interesting tattoo on the back of the man's hand. And it looked like a maple leaf. Oh, he's Canadian. (laughs) That's where this goes to Canada. I was like, where is this a Canadian case? We're in London. I know. I'm taking you for like an international ride here. Uh Aha. Okay. So there was also one piece of evidence that had not been washed away by the waves. A 25-year-old Rolex watch that the man was wearing, and it was still on his wrist. Okay, well, if if he had been robbed or mugged, they would have taken the Rolex for sure. Right? But his pockets were, like, turned inside out. Was that just from the water? Yeah, could it have been from the water? Could it have been intentional? There's all these questions swirling around. Mm -hmm. So the watch was a Rolex Oyster Perpetual, which is an expensive timepiece that was waterproof and manually wound up, but it still operated for up to three days after the power ran out. So today, one of these goes for around $10,000. Oof. Yeah. Jesus. So using the Rolex as a guide, the police were able to determine the day and time of death down to the second by subtracting... The power reserve from the date still on the watch calendar, which some sources that I read say that it was July 20th, 1996, which is only eight days before the body was found. But other sources say that it was six weeks before the body was found, and some say two weeks. Oh, that's a huge variance. Yeah, I can't find a definitive answer, but I am pretty sure that if someone had murdered this John Doe and left him out at sea... They didn't think that they would be caught so soon. Right. But the company, Rolex, also keeps meticulous records of its customers and their purchases. So the police used the serial number on the watch to call Rolex and discover the identity of the owner. It had recently been serviced at a shop in Yorkshire, and they gave police a name. And it was Ronald Joseph Platt. Okay, maybe this was a stolen watch, though. What if it's leading them to the wrong person? I mean, it could be totally stolen. At this point, they don't know. But they They got a name. 
at least they have a name, right. which is going to lead them in some direction. Right. And if it was stolen, that guy would be like, yeah, hey, that's my freaking watch. Give it back. <laughs> totally, totally. And, I mean, if you think about it, there were no other ways to identify this man. Yeah. Like, And then they could contact this person's family if they can't get a hold of him, and they'd be like, hey, yeah, he's been missing. We haven't heard from him, and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And they even looked at missing persons in the area, and there wasn't anyone that fit this man's description. So hmm. with no missing persons report, like the body being in a really strange state of decomposition because it's been in the water, without this watch, they would not have had an identity. Huh. Crazy. So Ronald... He was a 51-year-old television repairman, and he owned a local shop, and records showed that he lived in England. His last known address was a home in Essex. The police contacted Ronald's landlord, and the landlord gave them the phone number of Ronald's reference for when he signed the lease. And this reference, his name, was Mr. David Davis. David Davis. Man, it's like, it's like Steve Stevenson. Yeah, what are you doing? Paul Paulson. I know. <laughs> David Davis. So David Davis agreed to voluntarily speak with the police in person to shed some light on Ronald's life. He said that he was friends with Ronald and that he had lent him money to set up a business in France. And that as far as he knew, Ron had gone to France to make that business a reality. So at that point the police had all but made up their mind that this was an accidental death. But, but, one police officer wanted to speak with David Davis again, just about a few things to wrap up the case before, you know, it was closed. But he, for some reason, couldn't reach him over the phone. So he asked Sergeant Peter Redmond in Essex to head out to the Davis's address in a rural area to find him in person. And just, you know, tell him basically, hey, you know. I'm trying to get a hold of him. Is trying to get a hold of you. Give him a call back, right? Mm -hmm. Super simple. Nothing like, you know, they're not like going to question him again or anything. So with only four houses in the area and no marked addresses, the sergeant stopped and knocked at the door of one of the first houses that he came across. So think of like rural England in kind of the countryside. countryside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like lots of greenery, like dirt roads, and four farmhouses basically in one area. So okay. he has no idea which one is the house he's supposed to go to. Right. So he goes to this door, he knocks, and an older couple answers, Frank and Audrey, and they asked who he was looking for. The officer told them that he was hoping to speak with David Davis at Little London Farmhouse. But the couple said, uh, no. The person who lives at Little London Farmhouse is not David Davis, it's Ronald Platt. What? Yeah, the guy who the is dead? Deceased. He's what? dead. Yeah. Okay. So, confused, Sergeant Redman asks the couple to describe Ronald Platt, and they give him the exact same description as David Davis. They were one in the same. What was Ronald's description? Did th could they get much if he was decomposing? Well, the person that the couple described, like David Davis is very distinct looking. Mm. He's a bit older, has a mustache. Like he's quite, at least I guess from what the police are gathering, that it wasn't Ronald at all. Because I think that at that point they probably looked up Ronald and had a 
picture of him mm-hmm. at this point. But David Davis was the landlord? Yeah, so he was the reference. Oh, not the, that, not the landlord. He wasn't the landlord. He was the reference on Ronald's uh, lease. Okay. He gave, you know, you give a reference of like an employer or a friend yeah. or something like that yeah. to give you, like back you up. Gotcha. Hmm. So it was at this point that the police knew that there was something very fishy going on with David Davis. And they now suspected that he had actually stolen Ronald Platt's identity and was living a double life. What? Yeah. So, to prove this, the police had to establish the connection between the real Ronald and the man saying that his name was David Davis. Which, like in my opinion, just sounds like a fake name. David, David Davis. Davis. Like, Could you not have thought of something better if you were trying to come up with a different name? I like, know. Even like Joe Smith is sounds better than David Davis. I don't know. I know. I mean, so sorry if there's people out there listening that have like names like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dick. So the police decide to speak to Ronald's longtime girlfriend, who's actually his ex at this point, and her name is Elaine, and the story starts to come out. So first of all, she says that Ronald, the real Ronald, was a lovely man, very gentle, super caring, and just amazing by all accounts. Mm-hmm. And can you guess what his prized possession was? His Rolex. Exactly. And that maple leaf tattoo on his hand, Uh, Ronald had always loved Canada. So in Harrogate, which is a town in England, David Davis met Elaine at a fine art auctioneer where she was working. They struck up a conversation about antiques and artwork and that he was looking for a place to live in Yorkshire. He offered Elaine a job on the spot when he first talked to her. Like just offered her a job it's like at his company no that's creepy i know it's like i stranger danger no thank you goodbye (laughs) yeah so he offers elaine a job at his company which is called united canvas corporation and apparently it was in the cayman islands Mm. which also red Mm -hmm. fucking flag bullshit (laughs) yeah red flag And he then became fast friends with both Elaine and her boyfriend at the time, Ronald. So he told them that he would help them financially so that they could afford to go to Canada and live there for a while because this was Ronald's dream. He wanted to go to Canada. David Davis was a very good manipulator. He always had a wonderful facade. He brought people in. He was a true con man. He convinced Elaine and Ron to travel to Europe for him as directors of his company. So he basically like put his company in their name in in a way, like made yeah. them in charge. directors in charge. And they would go and deposit money for him into his bank accounts in various places in Europe. Wow. I don't know why, but they didn't think anything of it. <laughs> They just had no suspicions yeah. while they're doing this. Yeah, depositing money into multiple banks. Yeah, and I'm sure that he was paying them well as well. But yeah. I mean, they, if something is too good to be true, it usually yeah. is. They're like unknown accomplices. 
exactly like they didn't mean any harm but (laughs) yeah this guy is definitely bad news Mm -hmm. and they also didn't think anything of it because everyone that they spoke to had the same opinion of david davis right he he was a good man that's all anyone would say straight up guy yeah yeah But on Christmas Day of 1992, David Davis gave Ron and Elaine a gift, two plane tickets to Canada. He was sending them away. Yay! But (laughs) before they left, David Davis made rubber stamps of Ron and Elaine's signatures so he could use them for the business while they were away, which is just another major red flag oh my god so you literally have your signature and someone is using the stamp of your signature to sign things that's so weird it's your business but like why would he even need their signature it's his company yeah he doesn't want anything to come back to him oh my god yeah oh right so for a while the couple lived in canada But Elaine just wasn't comfortable there. She came back home to the UK to be a bridesmaid in a wedding, and she decided to actually leave Ronald and not go back to Canada. So at this point, Ronald is still living in Canada, but they've now separated. Okay. And also at this point, when Elaine said that she wasn't going back to Canada, David Davis cut all communication with Elaine off. He up and moved out of Harrogate, the town that he was living in and elaine literally never heard from him again so weird right like hey i'm coming back let's catch up like let's go grab some food and catch up over a drink yeah i literally like you know managed your money for a few years like maybe let's catch up whatever yeah just like up and left didn't give a forwarding address and all she had was his phone number and when she would call it it was like no answer disconnected exactly but little did she know that david davis was not going by that name anymore he had assumed the identity of her ex-boyfriend ronald platt oh my god and he went by ronald platt for three years so that's how long they were in Canada for? Was three years? Mm-hmm. Okay. So she came back early, but Ronald stayed there. So technically, David could use his identity, and it's in two different countries. So no right. one is really going to think Connect anything it. of it. Yeah, no yeah. one's connecting that. Oh, my God. That's why he wanted the signature. Totally. Okay. So now that they've talked to Elaine and they've actually figured all of this out, did they find him? Did they arrest him? They did. So, I know. So now that we know more about David Davis's connection to the real Ronald Platt, let's go back to the investigation. So on Halloween Day, October 31st, 1997, the police arrested David Davis on suspicion of the murder of Ronald Joseph Platt. He was trying to escape his house with a cab, like he just ordered a cab to his house and was basically going to flee. And the police were following him, like keeping oh. tabs on his house. Yeah. So they cornered him while he was in the cab and they put a gun to the passenger window. Oh my God. And in the UK, they have like armed police and they have unarmed police. Yeah. So they thought that they needed armed police because this guy said he was American. So they just thought David Davis would be armed because he was American. Oh. 
So they literally put a gun to the passenger window, asked him to step out, and put his hands back on the car. And they yeah. arrested him. Yeah. According to Sergeant Redmond, the dude was cool as a cucumber. Huh. No emotion, nothing at all. Like, huh. just totally calm during How the whole process. How the hell is he going to get his way out of this, though? Like, he's like... Right? Convinced and so cocky that he's not going to be able to get caught. Well, I think at this point that he doesn't know what the police know. So I think that he's maybe not aware that... Like, he obviously knows that they found Ronald's body and he's getting freaked, so he was trying to run. Mm -hmm. But maybe he thinks that he has a leg up at this point because they might not know exactly who he is. Maybe. So they take David in for questioning and they fingerprint him and they run his prints through the system. And they realize that David Davis was way more than a suspect in Ronald Platt's murder. He was an international fugitive on Canada's, Canada's most wanted list. Shut up. Yep. And his real name was Albert Johnson Walker. Holy crap. I know. What a breakthrough. Right? Like, can you imagine being like, okay, we got this guy for murder in here. And then being like, oh, shit, he's literally internationally wanted. What was he wanted for? Oh, we'll get there. Albert Walker was born in Ontario, Canada, in a city called Paris. So here we go, back to Canada. Yeah. And he was a financial consultant and a Sunday school teacher. He was married to Barbara Walker, and they had four children together. In 1990, Albert went away on a skiing trip, and he took his daughter Sheena with him. And then, all of a sudden, he cut off all communication with Barbara and the rest of the kids. So he kidnapped his daughter. Basically fucking kidnapped his daughter. She was in her teens. Like, she was 15 at this point. 15, though, still fucking probably scared out of her mind. Has no idea why dad is just being like, yep, we're never going home again. Yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. Like, no, no. So it turns out that he had, you know, unbeknownst to Barbara, remortgaged their house completely so that he could get money from it. Mm -hmm. And he defrauded about 70 Canadian clients of $3.2 million. (gasps) Whoa. And then he just vanished. Vanished. Literally just disappeared. Yep. So at that point... In 1990, Albert Walker became Canada's most wanted man and number four on Interpol's list of international fugitives. Jesus. I know. Like, nobody recognized him. He, I mean, he literally left. He went to another country. He just was like, yep, I'm going to start a brand new life in the UK. Just, just that easy, I guess. My God. I guess so. So, Albert lived with his daughter, Sheena, in England But get this. He told everyone that she was his wife. Ew. Not his daughter. His wife. Did she know this? I think so. Did she? What the fuck, man? Why would you go along with... And why wouldn't she call home? I know. So... I think this is um, a case of Stockholm Syndrome in a way. Right. Because... I didn't read through all of her testimony. We'll get there. But she does say that she was very much under his spell. She was very vulnerable. Okay. She was young. 
and you know she didn't know any better at that point like this was obviously her dad she thought it was someone she could trust and this the really like awful thing is that he actually like people had said neighbors friends that he would talk very openly like sexually about his wife and i say that in quotation marks when it actually was his daughter which is like so disgusting that's alarming hoping that that's just talk um well apparently he showed picture a picture of her partially nude in the shower to <gasps> buddies of oh, his oh god okay yeah no no that's not good yeah Ugh. and sh- and like she was a teenager right and then kind of more disturbing news she did give birth to two children mm. and to this day we do not know who fathered the children that has never been released to the public I mean, if I am going to be honest, it's probably him. Yeah. I think we can connect those dots. Which is just disgusting. God. So police actually went to question Sheena. And at the time, they thought that she was his wife. Yeah. And they caught her stuffing gold bricks into her baby's diaper bag. And the gold was worth over $100,000. There's so many elements to this story. I know. And so they basically, I think they arrest her at this point. And she breaks down right away. Like she, she is, I think, at the time getting very like nervous and scared. And she ends up telling the truth. Right. She probably doesn't want to get in trouble. No, and uh, you know, if you think about it, this is your legal guardian, your dad. This is the person that's supposed to protect you, and he's essentially manipulated her, hurt her emotionally, probably physically, and like it, she would just be so messed up from this, like mm-hmm. a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. And you know, even in that moment, trying to take money, I'm thinking for her, if I'm like, okay, so my dad slash husband has been taken into police custody and yeah what am i gonna do i have to care for my kids somehow so take the money that you know that you have right for sure yeah she ends up testifying against her father and you know the truth all comes out the real ronald platt ended up coming back from canada and albert aka david davis Mm -hmm. was super pissed off because he couldn't continue to use Ronald's identity while he was in the same country. So Albert decided to take Ronald out on a fishing trip on his boat, where he then struck him in the head with an anchor and murdered him. Then he weighed him down with the anchor that he struck him with and dumped his body in the English Channel. Oh my god. He thought, I can only imagine, he thought that the anchor would weigh the body down to the bottom Mm -hmm. and literally he would get away with murder Mm -hmm. and continue on living as Ronald Platt. It came loose, though, obviously. Yeah, it came loose. Well, especially because the fishermen, they they bring their nets all the way down to the sea bottom. Yeah. So he got stuck in the net and actually the anchor came up in that net as well. But the police at the time didn't know that that had happened. So the fishermen didn't realize that that was like evidence in the case. They just thought that it was something caught in the net. And one of the fishermen actually tried to sell it at an auction for like 15 pounds or something. And um, the police got it back into evidence. Oh, nice. So 
they ended up having all of this evidence, all of this it, it's circumstantial, but also concrete yeah. against Albert. Oh, my God. So, of course, Albert pleaded not guilty mm-hmm. at his murder trial. Mm-hmm. But a jury found him guilty, and he received an automatic life sentence for murder. Thank God. Thank God. Like, this guy has manipulated so many people. Fraud, murder. Kidnapping. Child abuse. Literally fucking, everything. Yeah, like identity theft. All the things. Yes. All the things. All the things. So in 2005, Albert was actually transferred back to Canada to see out his sentence. And then two years later, he was convicted in Canada of 20 fraud and theft charges. And he was sentenced to a four-year term to run concurrent to his life sentence for murder. He applied for parole in early 2015, but it was denied. Okay, good. Yep. I hate hearing when they appeal. I know. When they apply for appeal, like, and for parole. Like, no, 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 no. Just stay. Stay in there. Denied. Good. I'm surprised that considering how greedy he was and wanted all this money from people, he didn't steal the watch. I know. What Isn't that dummy. crazy? You know, it was probably in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he just didn't see it or didn't think of it as valuable. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Just trying to think quick. I can only assume that's the reason why, because if he had taken the watch, he would have gotten away with it. 100%. Yeah. Oh, my God. And it's he'd wild. still be out there today just living oh. his life. So this man was a master con artist. He was manipulative, greedy, and he tricked everyone he became friends with to do his dirty work without even knowing. But it was a Rolex watch that was his undoing. And with that, we are no longer wondering, whose crime is it anyway? Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We will be back in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and on Twitter at Whose Crime Pod. And if you'd like to support our show, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Whose Crime Pod. Bye. Toodles. I had to put untimely in there because it's a Rolex killer. Ah, punny, 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 so punny. There was something very fishy going on with David Davis. Super fishy for a fisherman. I know, punny, right? Such a loser.